For nearly two decades, a lone man carried out a private war of his own creation with the rest of society. Proving a fiercely intelligent and capable man, Ted Kaczynski would craft homemade explosive devices and mail them to specific targets in attempts to trigger an anti-technological revolution, all while avoiding leaving any traces of evidence that may lead to him. The FBI led a task force of over 160 full-time investigators, analysts, and others, but would find little to go on except for connections made between his bombs and his victims. Attacking eight universities, three residential homes, four places of business, and an in-flight airplane, as well as committing small acts of sabotage, he left in his wake a string of casualties, three fatalities, and a nation terrified to open their own mail. After he thought the world was listening, he sent out his manifesto, entitled Industrial Society and Its Future, which laid out his eco-anarchist views for anyone to read. Dave Kaczynski, Ted's younger brother, picked up on the language of this document, noting it felt familiar to him. After he spent some time comparing the manifesto with earlier works of his brother, he felt he should turn over these similarities to the proper authorities, which ultimately led to his arrest two months later. Thank you for tuning into A Dark Tale, the true crime podcast that shows evil can be anywhere. If this is your first time joining us, welcome and thanks for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How are you, Joe? How are you, James? I'm good. Yeah, me too. So we're continuing our discussion on Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. Teddy Kaz. When we last left Ted, it was about 1978 and... He was coming out of the cabin that he had built with his brother, the 10 by 12 secluded one-room cabin. Mm -hmm. um, he and David built in the countryside of Lincoln, Montana. Uh, Ted went out there for a short time to try to make a rough go of it, you know, survive on his own, uh, hunting his own food, foraging for food, and making ends meet financially on odd jobs that he could find around Montana and Salt Lake City. Apparently not the most unheard of lifestyle in the area. Apparently not. There were others doing the same around the same time he was. There's a uh, word for it, isn't there? Uh, uh, Neo-Luddite. Neo-Luddite? Yeah, as a, as a lifestyle philosophy adopted by those who reject technology in modern ways. Okay. Thank you for dropping that knowledge bomb. So, Ted went out there for a while, didn't really succeed in, in his mind at doing what he wanted to do out at the cabin. So, he came back to a Chicago suburb and um, reconnected with his parents and his brother. Right. His father and his brother both worked at this rubber foam production factory, mm -hmm. and David was a warehouse manager, and he took Ted on and uh, gave him a job, a part-time position in the warehouse. And uh, Ted actually became um, romantically involved with a female employee. Really? How'd that she go? was actually a supervisor. Hi, everyone. Editing version of James here. I just wanted to interject because we got a couple of things wrong over the next few minutes. 
So he did take out a female co-worker, his supervisor, out to dinner, and I think they had a couple of other interactions, but even to call it romantic involvement would be a little bit of a stretch. He started writing insulting limericks about her, and that's what his brother inevitably let him go for. But she never saw them, and she never really turned them down as dramatically as some said that she did. Some even said that she was the reason he went on to commit the bombings, but he actually committed his first bombing two months before they even met. Editing and fact-checking James away! After David fired him, that pretty much wrapped up his time in civilization and kind of sent him off the deep end, I think. And after that, shortly after that, moved back to Lincoln, Montana yeah. full-time. I, 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 excuse me, <clears throat> further looking into it this week, um, it's been my understanding that the family always kind of knew that he wanted to do that. Like, I kind of made it seem like his ultimate goal was the pursuit of mathematical truth, but in reality, he kind of always wanted that that lifestyle for himself in some regard, I think. Just cut off off the grid and yeah yeah and uh and furthermore he didn't really uh take well to that psychological test in harvard like we were we were pondering maybe he was getting something out of it like some sort of intellectual challenge or something but he it was not good for him it's interesting you bring that up because i read into it more uh about his particular feelings on the murray experiments whatever you want to refer to them as And he said it didn't really bother him. There was one incident that he remembers was very stressful, I think he put it, but it overall didn't affect him. I don't know if that's a true statement. Yeah, I think think possibly. I think the the credence that it affected him, when you look more into his writings, there's some notes that touch on that, like the fact that he wasn't fond of psychologists. Like, and it was probably for that reason. He thought that a lot of right. a lot of youth was being manipulated, and he thought the systems were. He just, you know, they were collecting it, information yeah, to just, use against it, him. Yeah, and, it, it was a real situation that he was probably a little overly sens- sensitive to. I mean, that was a bad situation, but it it really probably did affect him more than I initially was led to believe. Yeah. That's interesting. So, in this second half, we're going to be focusing more on, I guess, the attacks, aren't we? Yeah, the attacks, uh, the evasion, and the inevitable capture, which was uh, maybe... Well, you said inevitable, uh, inevitable, and uh, it it certainly didn't seem that way at the FBI at the time. No. At least for the first... First 10. I was going to say, how long did it go on total? 25? 17 oh. years. Well, who am I? Never mind. From I'm, wrong. I'm just wrong. 78 to 95. Oh, okay. Um, all right, so he began using mail bombs and used the, the postal service, USPS. And uh, he occasionally hand-delivered a series of um, packages himself over, yeah, a 17-year period, beginning in 1978, starting at Northwestern University. And um, there's actually two instances almost a year apart 
to the day from May 25th, 1978, May 9th, 1979, uh, two bombs were sent to, um, the first one was sent to uh, Terry Marker. He was a university police officer, only suffered uh, minor cuts and burns when the package exploded. His first target was uh, a professor, Buckley Christ, who totally escaped injury when he, he this package with a, his return address was found in the parking lot uh-huh. outside of his office building. And uh, it was returned to him, but Christ alerted security, noting that he hadn't sent any package, so he wouldn't be expecting one to be returned to him. Oh, okay. So that... you, you, you understand it's it had a return to sender label. So this uh, university police officer, security guard, he opened it up and uh, suffered injuries to his hands when the bomb exploded inside. It's unclear why Kaczynski targeted Chris. However, at the time, he was still living with his father hmm. and working with his brother. A year later, he sent one to a... Uh, to the same university, Northwestern, but uh, this time it was opened by John Harris, who again was faced with the minor cuts and burns after opening the package. Mm-hmm. So his his bombs got more advanced, if you want to call it that. How so? I guess they got more complex. I think they were more lethal. Even the fact that they didn't kill anyone initially, I think up until like something like the seventh or eighth victim, they got more complex in construction, according to the FBI. So over the next seven years, Kaczynski sends nine homemade pipe bombs to multiple targets including executives at American and United Airlines, academic administrators, injuring seven pe- several people, uh, some almost fatally, but nothing, nothing f- fatal just yet. If you remember back to uh, part one, the intro in part one, uh, we had a reading from an article from a passenger who was on American Airlines Flight 444. On November 15th, 1979, this flight took off from Chicago O'Hare and was due to arrive in Washington, D.C. There were 12 passengers, I believe, on the plane. No, no, 12 victims. Just 12 victims. Yeah. I, I apologize. No, I, I think it was... Um, it was the plane full? I don't know if it was full, but it was, but it was still a commercial flight. I did. Okay, um, so this this bomb was set to go off in mid-flight. Um, it had an altimeter attached to it that was supposed to go off at, I believe, 30,000 feet. And um, the bomb timer or something, something went wrong on the bomb. I don't, I have no idea what did. Yeah, it was, but a, yeah, it was the timing mechanism. It was just faulty. The effect was... The bomb did activate. The only thing that happened, though, was uh, caused a bunch of smoke to enter the cabin mid-flight, which caused the plane to land 
emergency land in um, Virginia. So it's I, on the way. Yeah, it was uh, not even far off from their destination. Exactly. But, so. Uh, but yeah, it was like 12, 12 people. passengers yeah, escaped injuries. Well, everyone escaped major injuries, but 12 passengers left with non-lethal smoke inhalation. Yeah. Still a very, very scary experience to be in mid-flight and have smoke filled your cabin. Yeah, that article was something. And have the, uh, you know, the overhead oxygen masks hanging down. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a scary... Nobody wants to be uh, in, in a plane when that that's happening. So between that one and then uh, the fact that they connected it with the other ones at the universities, that's when they gave them the designation Unabomber. Yeah. After that, it was... Uh, I guess it was after F- Flight 444... Or after this next one, he sent in June 1980 to uh, a man named Percy Wood, who was the president of United Airlines at the time. He suffered severe cuts and burns over most of his body and his face Yeah, um, in Lake Forest, Illinois. So it may have been after the actual bomb on the airplane or the bomb sent to the president of United Airlines that the FBI dubbed the unsub as they had previously known or referred to him as uh, they referred to him now as Unibom UN for University A for Airliner and BOM started its own task force for Unibom yeah that was that was after the the yeah that um, was after flight 44 for flight 444 yes um and I get I don't it may have been that one because it was because uh, it caused a bunch of smoke. But at, at some point he he. Well, I think more so because it was in fl- mid-flight. No, I was about to say that uh, he started doing shrapnel bombs to get uh, to uh, having some sort of combustion on them, because, and when we get to Percy Wood, that's when he had burns on him. Yeah, that's I the th- first I, really I th- severe yeah. physical, yeah, atrocity. Um. Yeah, so that's how it's really started, I think, moving up in levels of sophistication. They started moving from just um, shrapnel and, and nails and razors and things right. like that, um, which, oddly enough, can be rudimental, rudimentally dis, um, constructed by most people, I think, just loosely. Uh, oddly enough, I don't think a pipe bomb is all that hard to no. construct. No, I don't no. know anything all about I... explosives or ballistics. But... No, it's just a cr- matter of creating pressure and and then having a bunch of shit yeah but then when he started he started getting combustion and then the shrapnel and he started having these trigger devices then yeah. yeah they started yeah he spent a lot of time and all this time he was cabin. he was he was uh planting fake evidence he was scrubbing real evidence on the bombs he was planting fake evidence on the bombs uh he was thinking like eight steps ahead sure yeah which is amazing to me because they had the profile all wrong for, like we said initially, the first nine or ten years. Yeah. So yeah, it was uh, a lot of the fact that he uh, he had such strong political leanings towards uh, his bombings that they thought it was probably somebody uh, younger. Yeah. Well, the task force would grow to over 150 full-time investigators, analysts, and other researchers, all in search of clues 
The team made every possible forensic examination of recovered bomb components and studied the lives of the victims in complete and minute detail. The victimology in the investigation was pretty much everything because all they had was who these people were yeah, and he, bomb pieces. Yeah, it was that was the only thing he was making super clear. Right. So in the beginning, most of the efforts proved pretty much useless in identifying the bomber and because uh, uh, he left no forensic evidence, building his bombs essentially from scraps, Yeah, uh, pretty much anybody could find. Yeah. Like you were saying, nails, razor blades, anybody can get this stuff. Um, and uh, even, even his regular components. So he even when he used like batteries, he would rip the skins off them. Right. So just have no details on them. Right. He wouldn't have any sort of commercial glue. He would make his own glue and epoxy. He would. He, right. would, he would make his own material. He would. He would literally construct his a bomb from the elements. Right. You know. So right. it's he would get the. I think any material he couldn't make himself, he would. He would use as a base material to make something else. Yeah. Like you said, the glue. Yeah. The epoxy. Yeah. He melted down deer hooves. There you go. Perfect example. If he couldn't, I mean, he he literally, uh, I, who would think to take deer hooves to use for a pocket? Somebody with survival skills. Who's, who read a lot who, of books. Who, who, yeah, and used it as probably a couple times in as construction material for other things. Um, he, was, he had rudimentary knowledge of how to construct these things, and he was a smart guy, and then he just he put it to awful use. Victims... Late, later learned by investigators, all the victims were actually chosen randomly from, from library research. The FBI felt confident that the Unabomber had been raised in Chicago and later lived in the Salt Lake City and San Francisco areas. This turned out to be true. His occupation proved more elusive, however, with theories ranging from aircraft mechanic to a scientist. Even the gender was not 100%. Although investigators believed bombers, the bomber would most likely a male, they also investigated female, several female suspects, which I had no clue about. Did, at any point, they suspect that it was, in fact, a group? Did they take that bait? Because he, he tried to lead them on to believe that there was more than one of, of him going around. I don't know how long they pursued that lead. It was pretty much their theory that it was one person after a short period of time. Even though he referred to himself as a group yeah. in all his communications, he referred to himself as we and us and our. And um, so... I have a minor theory about that. I think that not only was he trying to throw them off, I think he was genuinely trying to get people to... Um, join him on an individual level like see somebody across the country gets his message and like speaking for someone else exactly picks up on his wavelength and says i gotta i gotta do my part this too. guy's on to something and then suddenly you have two people standing alone completely not even working together just he wanted to start a revolution right that's exactly so i i think i think talking in the speaking in a collective in in things like that implies that you already have the numbers and in in his hopes get gets the wheels going or 
he's paranoid schizophrenic and the voices in his head <laughs> really make him believe that there is a we. Yeah, they labeled him par- paranoid schizophrenic in the end, but for his delusions, I don't know if he was um, if he, like hallucinated like that. You never know. True. Something to specul- speculate. So as far as the investigation goes, like we said, they had the profile wrong for 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 a long time. They were, and they were building the profile off of just what his his targets, his his targets, his his bombings and his motivations up until that point. Like not his writings, right? I think the first big break was the the manifesto. Was the uh, the big communication was the manifesto itself? I don't think there was anything before that. So, it so makes as sense. far as the yeah. investigation goes, they really had the types of bombs he was sending, the victims, and there was really no MO. I mean, other than what they could gather from victimology, which is the study of each individual victim in and of themselves, who they are, what kind of people they associate with, Mm -hmm. how their everyday lives are pretty much conducted. That's victimology in a nutshell. So the FBI had to study who was being targeted and develop an MO based of off of that up until 1995. Yeah. So he, he evaded capture for so long because between being able to scrub evidence and, and throw around fake evidence. Well, let's, we, we left off at Percy Wood in yeah. nine, June, 1980 president of United airlines. Uh, he suffered severe cuts burns all over most of his body and his face. The next bomb, October 1981. He sent it to the University of Utah. The bomb was diffused, so there were no injuries. Then in May of 1982, he sent a bomb to Tennessee, Vanderbilt University, and uh, Janet Smith, a university secretary, suffered severe burns to her hands and shrapnel wounds all over her body. Two months later, he sent one to his alma mater, University of California, Berkeley, to um, engineering professor, I'm gonna butcher this name here, Uh, forgive me to all the Greek brothers and sisters out there that are listening, Diogenes Angelikos. Diogenes Diogenes Angelicos he was a engineering professor at uh, Berkeley he suffered severe burns and shrapnel wounds both to the hands and face and after July 1982 he goes quiet for three years yeah he had a really heavy period in the early 80s yeah uh, almost back to back yeah May and July of 1982 and then he's quiet for three years and he goes back to Berkeley graduate student John Hauser suffers the loss of four fingers and severed artery in his right arm suffered partial vision loss in his left eye yeah so that's that's a really gruesome attack to a grad student this was a student yeah, I think the uh, at this point the Unabomber is well known throughout the country. 
like height of infamy really absolutely absolutely everybody knows about you know the acronym um i think even at this point that infamous sketch is going around with the with the the hood and the glasses and you know the the, the little mustache well i have to uh, correct myself once again uh the uh that infamous hoodie sketch with the big aviator glasses that didn't come until um after the uh, computer store bombing which is the first fatality in 1985 okay was what did the sketch come from that bombing yeah there was a witness at the computer store that was owned by Hugh Scrutton and I did I I did skip over a few other university bombings and a Boeing bombing but the Boeing company in Auburn that bomb was defused uh, Professor James McConnell at the University of Michigan he uh, suffered temporary hearing loss and uh, Nicholas Suino, his research assistant, he suffered the uh, the full impact of that bomb with burns and shrapnel wounds. Uh, they were both at the University of Michigan on November 15th, 1985, when that bomb was exploded in um, Professor McConnell's office. And on to this computer store owner, Hugh Scrutton, the first fatality of the Unabomber also births that witness sketch. Mm. Uh, there's a Netflix, well, it's not produced, it was, it was produced by Discovery, but it's running on Netflix now. Uh, I, th- I think it came out in 2017. It's called Manhunt, the search for the Unabomber. Yeah. It stars I, um, I it, um, Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany as Ted Kaczynski. Really? And- yeah. Because I read yeah. he was in it. Does a good I, job. I didn't know he played Ted Kaczynski. He doesn't strike me as a Ted Kaczynski. Does a good job. Cool. And um, Sam Worthington is uh, James R. Fitzpatrick. He he also does a very good job. And in that, they, they um, scrutinize. I don't know how true this is about the sketch that that infamous sketch that I keep referring to with the big aviator glasses. I think it was on Newsweek yeah. magazine. Yeah, it's, Everybody's seen it. If you're familiar with the case. It's emulated like... Yeah. yeah it's but the apparently look. that sketch is incorrect according to this um, docuseries. That sketch is actually of the sketch artist. It was the witness's re- recollection of the sketch artist who was doing the actual sketch, if that makes any sense. She recalled her memory of the sketch artist from the original sketch, and they kind of blended together in her memory, and that's the infamous sketch that is on the cover of uh, Newsweek magazine. People only paid attention to her uh, eyewitness account after the following bombing happened two years later. And at that point, she had to reconstruct. Right. It's two years after the fact. Wow. She's got that just goes to show you how unreliable eyewitness testimony is, especially when you're that far removed from the incident. Mm -hmm. So we had an incorrect profile and an incorrect sketch. Exactly. Now. Again, I got that from 
the documentary series, not really a documentary series, it's more of a dramatic series. Yeah, I heard that was so a I little stretched. I don't know how far they went with that whole sketch story, but I thought it was a little interesting sidebar. I read that, what's his name, Fitz? Yeah. He he did not have as big a role as that no, series. not at all. They he did, didn't visit him after he any, was... Yeah. No. That's yeah. what I read about. Uh, that whole, I mean, if you haven't seen the series yet, I mean, I won't ruin it. I, I'm going to ruin it for you, but it's two years he gets after caught. the fact. Well, yeah, he gets caught, but the the way they get him to plead guilty is not at all how it actually went down. Oh, really? I didn't know that much. No, the way they show it in the show, it's very dramatized and very far removed from the truth. Hmm. You know, it makes for great television. Sure. It is very interesting, and it's a, it, it's a great way to bring the whole thing to an end. Uh, but it's uh, very fictionalized. Fitz didn't have a big role in the in the sentencing. He had a huge role in the linguistic analytics of it all. Uh, that whole bit is is pretty much true. Which still wouldn't come out for another what ten years after that, though. In, from 1985, yeah, exactly. The manifesto wouldn't be mailed out until 95, and this is what he's known for. Other than the bombs, this is what he's known for. The 35,000-word document explaining all his motives, his views on the ills of modern society, and he says... Uh, Basically, I want you to publish these in the most reputable sources available. Uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and for some reason he suggested Penthouse, which ultimately he decided against, and they went with the Washington Post. Okay. But it came after, I think, um, five months of debate on whether or not it, it came after a uh hostage situation not really a hostage situation he said he was going to blow up another plane if his manifesto wasn't published yeah. and he also said once it is published he would stop with the bombs it should be worth noting that at this point um he uh He's gained two more victims. Like he, he's, yeah. he's killed two his, his bombs that are gaining sophistication, and uh, he's successfully killed two people on the last two attempts. Which brings us to another point, with something you questioned in part one, the designation of a serial killer. Oh yeah. Um, it's my understanding that he is considered a serial killer because of those three victims. Mm -hmm. Um, and they are spread out over a series of span, a span of time. It's not right. It wasn't all in one shot. It wasn't all in one bomb. And, uh, that pretty much meets the criteria for, for the definition of a serial killer. Okay. So that being said, not only is he a serial killer, but he's a homegrown American domestic terrorist. Yeah. And we all know here in the States that the United States government does not negotiate with terrorists. So that's why it took f something around five months for to, uh, to, to make the decision to go ahead and publish this. Now, let me set the scene 
for the younger listeners. Now, I wasn't much older than most people listening um, when this happened, but you have to consider the times. This is around so 1995. Much older than most people, did you say? Huh? Is it much older than most people? Most people listening, I'm assuming, oh. are younger than me. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so it's a little blurry in my mind, is okay. what I'm saying. But I was five. I was younger than most people. I was seven. We were younger than most. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know what our audience is like. Oh, I don't know okay. what the demographic is. I'm confusing myself. Anyway, uh, uh, to set the, the scene of the times, you had Waco going on. Um, Janet Reno had yeah. all this on her hands. She had Waco to deal with. She was dealing with Ruby Ridge. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ruby Ridge situation. No. Ruby Ridge was a family living much like Ted Kaczynski, isolated, cut off on a mountain. And um, FBI, ATF more or less killed them. Oh. Yeah, we'll have to get into more of that right. later on. Um, so Janet Reno, again, was dealing I with Waco, Ruby Ridge, Ted Kaczynski, or Unabomber. Um, Timothy McVeigh. Thank you. The Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. Uh, she was had all this to deal with, and at the very top of the priority list was, you know, not having a uh, an airliner explode mid-flight. Yeah. So it was pretty much down to the wire, uh, up to Janet Reno on whether to publish this thing, and after uh, much debate about giving in to terrorists. FBI Director Louis Free and Janet Reno approved the task force recommendation to publish the essay in hopes that a reader could identify the author. Because at this point, all they had was FC to go on. Freedom Club was the group that Kaczynski was claiming to be a part of. And uh, I had heard they first decided against it. They definitely decided against it initially. Yeah, and uh, even the people on the task force were. They, know, they were. We don't. They were uneasy about with terrorists. But this they were. Isn't a question. Right. I. But I, I. I. It may have been the CNN documentary. But um, they. Uh, the some people in the who were in charge of that decision. They kind of felt immediately that they it wasn't the right one. They kind of thought that like there might be, it might be better to to um to just Write release it. Out. Yeah, and I guess. Maybe for the reason that it would hopefully lead to his capture, but I also I also understand the decision against it too. Yeah, I can definitely understand the hesitation, especially trying to prevent. You know, you, you don't want to you, you don't state. you don't want to give these people a platform. Exactly. You know? that was the whole debate. Why are we giving these people a platform? Yeah, the, the worst case scenario, you do get people scattered across the country who start he starts sparking something. They gave the task force to go ahead and publish 35,000 words in the Washington Post. The reason they chose the Post was because it was only sold in a select area of San Francisco, which is where all the bombs seemed to be dispersing from. Oh, okay. So the idea was center around where the newspapers will be sold from mm -hmm. keep eyes all around which was a major task in, a, in and of itself and they'll hopefully catch them but they 
that was ultimately a failure. Mm-hmm. It wasn't useless because that turned out to be the key in the end. Um, I don't have her name, but yeah, David's wife, Ted's sister-in-law, saw the manifesto published and she recognized his writing style. She brought this to the attention of her husband and David was somewhat reluctant to believe her. Yeah, he yeah, he, that didn't fit into his like, it's like, his brother. It's his brother. Like how how can you how can you possibly reconcile that? Like even yeah. if it does look a little eerily similar to some of his college rants. Well, how do you suddenly fit into your mind that your brother is the one who's bombing our uh Let's try to let's try to compartmentalize this a little bit because yeah. When the manifesto was published, they had a new profile, mm-hmm. but it wasn't released to the public. So people only knew of this older profile. They were suspecting an older airline mechanic or uh, an older disgruntled employee. Mm-hmm. So, and when I say older, I mean between 40 and 50. Ted Kaczynski is in his mid 50s at this point. Okay, so in 95, James Fitzgerald comes onto the case as an FBI profile to establish a new profile because of the unique linguistic writing style that Kaczynski used in this manifesto. Uh, The way it was formatted was not strange, but it was outdated. See, Kaczynski was well-educated. He went to, you know, he got his doctorate in Michigan. And in order to do that, you have to write a thesis. Dissertation. Dissertation, thank you. And um, the style, the writing style of this dissertation was unique in the time that Kaczynski went to school. So this pertains to numbered paragraphs, which if you look at the manifesto today, all the paragraphs are numbered. I know, I printed it out. It's 63 pages long. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I read a little bit of it, and uh, yeah, I, I couldn't get all the way through it. <laughs> it gets, Could, gets a little boring. No, it doesn't. It's just once you put it down, it's like you really you, you really have to finish it in one sitting. Yeah, because it's, it's just... It's, it's, there's a lot of things that he kind of repeats. Sure, I would imagine so. So that's why you can you can kind of see where Fitzgerald was going with the unique writing style, the word choice, the phrasing, the phrasing, yeah. particularly the phrase "have your cake and eat it too." In the manifesto, it's reversed. Kaczynski wrote, "Eat your cake and have it too," and apparently, according to Fitzgerald. We've been saying it wrong. Kaczynski mentioned it right. Only him and his mother apparently use it the right way and everybody else have been... And other scumbags who act smarter than everyone else. Yeah. And... Actually, it's... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, technically, actually, it's like... So Kaczynski wrote this phrase, eat your cake and have it too, in the manifesto, and this is where... Um, Ted's sister-in-law comes into play. Oh, she, she picked recog- up on that. Yeah. She, she recognized that, brought it to David's attention, and after some, you know, reluctance, David kind of dug through old communications with Ted 
after he had moved to Montana, old letters. Uh, one particular one he provided, David provided the FBI a 23-page document, uh, but it, it pretty much was the comparison to the manifesto. He, I mean, that was that was a big deal. Like he. He combed through the manifesto with his wife too, and they were they were comparing it with letters from Ted, and they would be switching off. And he said it was a he described it as just a roller coaster because he you know he wouldn't be sure and yeah, but but it was so vaguely similar. And at the same time, it became this that has to be a gut sure, and then it became a moral argument of its. And we already talked about that. He's he was a smart guy too. Yeah, they were both very smart. Absolutely. So him looking over this, he wanted to be sure before he said anything. And once he even saw the similarities, he then was confronted with a choice because he knew that innocent people might die. But he was also afraid that if he turned in his brother, he might lose his brother, which is just. Yeah. 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 And later on, after Ted was captured, David pleaded for uh to avoid the death penalty yeah. at all costs yeah they were he worked uh with his defense james fitzgerald said he wanted to devote all his time and energy into looking at any and all kind of language in the in the case so any kind of communications that the unabomber did send before this manifesto i know we're kind of shaky on whether or not he sent out yeah. some some communications turns out he did Turns out he did, but he just wanted to be, to be completely clear at and make out whatever he could can, and again, uh, he would he would use he would look for some archaic terms like broad and and chick when referring to women, and um, Negroes when referring to African Americans, and. Um, Things like this, just old school words that people didn't use anymore. Yeah. Ted was out of the sh social loop completely. Fitz referred to these words as Sinatra talk because it's how people talked back then in the 50s and mm -hmm. 60s. It was the last time he was so, so plugged in. Yeah, so he they, said it, it's, it sounded like a 50s movie. Yeah, so that tipped him off a little more to, to his proper age then. And... Right away, after reading, you know, Ted's writing, that really helped build the age for the new profile mm -hmm. of Unabomber. They got more out of the manifesto than they, they had up until, anything up until this point. Uh, Fitzgerald, I called him, I think I called him Fitzpatrick earlier. Uh, Fitzgerald put this whole linguistic analysis unit together, which was something that did not exist at the time. So David approaches authorities with uh these letters and all these papers and they compare i'm sorry they do a comparison with the manifesto and when combined with the facts gleaned from the bombings and kaczynski's life all this analysis provided a basis for a search warrant mm. which is something that had never been done before something that was purely based on what one would call circumstantial evidence other than you know obviously bomb evidence and and that forensic sure. evidence well, just, there's not much forensics to go on no not word choice is, is hardly forensics exactly but, so 
but it was they in were, this case. They were able to secure a search warrant, and on April 3rd, 1996, investigators arrested Kaczynski and, combined, and combed the cabin. They found a wealth of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments and descriptions of Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb ready for mailing. Wow. So Kaczynski's reign of terror was over after 17 years. Yeah, it was a cultural event. It uh, it would end with his new home after a guilty plea, of course, a, a, a very uh, reluctant guilty plea. Kaczynski actually wanted the, the death penalty. And as we said a moment ago, David um, fought for his brother's life. Something that I, I think Ted kind of resents. Probably, yeah. He, uh, I mean, I think uh, this is a way for Ted not to have control when him being he, in jail. He, he's, yeah. Well, he's not getting what he wants. He's not getting his. Well, end no, result. his 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 entire revolution is thwarted. His, I mean, his brother turned him in, and uh, his. I know he was very, very afraid of just being deemed a a, a, a madman, which is, which. Is, is essentially what happened. Yeah, because he's it's not far off from the truth. Well, like Unfor- we said, we, yeah. he no matter how smart he is, diagnosed um, paranoid schizophrenic. His new home found him in an isolated cell, the Supermax prison in ADX Florence in Colorado. It's basically your average ten by twelve cell, not much bigger than uh, Kaczynski's cabin. Mm-hmm. And... Well, at least he'll be comfy. So, yeah, I'm sure he's not really unhappy in a, in a jail cell. Oh, I bet he yeah, is. I'm sure he makes use of his time in this confined space. I bet but, he misses the woods. That's it. Yeah, it's got to miss the woods. But, but he can... Uh, it, the, the way the cell is laid out, it's a 10 by 12 cell. There's a row of bars. Outside, there is a little corridor and then another solid door shuts so he is in complete and total isolation i doubt he even has a window sucks for him no it doesn't no no for him um that does that does suck they described a yeah they labeled him as uh having paranoid schizophrenia so he was uh, that's how he skirted the death penalty, but they said he wasn't psychotic, um, schizotypal personality disorder they smacked him with, which is thought disorder, derealization, social anxiety. Um, yes, he just he just got caught up in his own paranoid delusions. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He didn't so much as hallucinate as uh, he started to believe all the shit he probably told himself over the years. Yeah, I mean, spending all that time in isolation and not knowing how to communicate, getting trapped inside your own mind, as brilliant as you may be, this could always, you know, this could be the outcome. You need to socialize and normalize yourself a little bit. Yeah, you're not a you're not a computer or a robot. But because he was so smart, he found a lot of uh, fodder, you yeah. know, to to separate oh me versus everybody else. Yeah. So, 
I think people who have that line of thinking that's that could be dangerous and then because you are rejecting the fact that you well you are human and the the fact that you are human means you do need socialization it's like a yeah. fact like yeah, it's you're like an animal yes that's like part of the it's is literally you just socialized yeah exactly and it's just just how it is and there's Got plenty a, of there's plenty of evidence to support that i mean you could look at mm-hmm. chimps you could look at dolphins they they're all social animals all developmental psychology i think uh scientists are kind of naming like the the essential things of of for uh for a kid's psychological growth and it's like socialization yeah feeling safe you know feeling safe over actually being safe it doesn't really matter about right, the right. reality of the situation right, as right. long as that child feels safe um but i don't know i it's i think uh because not a whole lot went so wrong in his life it's um well i mean I have to blame him. He didn't really make an attempt to be social. Yeah. Well, he yeah. He, he didn't, uh, didn't want to reach fault. people. Yeah. That's the last thing you know I want to do. And I, I, I really hope people didn't get the wrong idea by us going into um, his early life in the first half because it's not really about empathizing em- empathizing and 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 saying well he was just a bright boy who went in who bit- had a tough time yeah no it's- had every advantage and he just. He just threw it away, it's like, which is exactly what he did. It's yes and no, right? Yeah, but, it's like it was that, but at the same time, once you start making those decisions, you're you're already down that path. You know, it's now you're it's an doing point. unforgivable That's things. The irony of it all is, once he started communicating, that was ultimately his downfall. If he had just kept to himself and continued to mail bombs, who knows? He could still be out there today. I. I doubt that very much. I doubt it very because much. Because I think... A, a, yeah, as time goes on, as forensics... Yeah, it was, it was always, I think it would just always add up. Um, yeah, something about American history and us losing our minds and turning on each other. It's, uh, it's like an American pastime at this point. Well, I think that about wraps it up for the Unabomber, right? Yeah, Anything it does. else you want to add? No, not not particularly. I honestly thought there was a bit more to this case because of the gravitas behind, um, sure. you know, every, just I guess because uh, of how long long it went on and it was a very long time. How much yeah. he evaded so capture you... and it's a peculiar. He's he is a peculiar case himself. Mm. Yeah, but um, I got nothing else. Thank you for our, for joining us here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you again for tuning into a dark tale. Please tell a friend. Tell them to tell a friend. Uh, more importantly, go over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a review. It all helps the show, and uh, we really appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with us, you can shoot us an email at darktailpodcast at gmail.com. That's right. And our Twitter is at, at a darktailpod. You can reach me personally at Joe the underscore the host, and uh, James is just at so, social media elusive. Is social? He's out there. You just got to find him. I, <laughs> he's like the dark web. I just don't like plugging. I don't trust you people. But you know, rate the podcast. <laughs> you don't have to follow me personally. I don't care. All right, guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> Until next time. Uh, stay safe out there. Please watch your backs because, as you know, evil can be anywhere.